0: Welcome to Teaching Python. This is episode 73, and it's all about curriculum design and planning for the upcoming year. My name is Sean Tiber. I'm a coder who teaches.
1: And my name's Kelly Schuster-Paredes, and I'm a teacher that codes.
0: Nice. And we are live streaming yet again this week uh, with our good friend, Quentin <laughs> Sheriff, uh, who's actually Kelly's really good friend. But, you know, we've been getting along really well in the pre-show, so I will count him as one of my new friends uh, also.
1: <laughs> yeah, okay. we're very excited to have Quentin. Um what can I say about Quentin? I met him in Peru in 2011, right? Or, yeah. yeah, 2011 and we started our adventure in South America. Um comes you worked I forget where you worked before but you come from Zimbabwe, correct?
2: Yeah, I come from Zimbabwe and I used to teach music in international schools. So I worked in China for 4 years and Thailand for 3 years. And then we met at the american school of lima yeah we and together he, for three
1: years absolutely and we he shared uh, quentin was like one of those people that you can just bounce the ideas off of we had some fun um tech integration with english and some awesome music technology with design tech and always a person to just bounce the ideas with i what i was going to do with tech and what he was going to do in english and now he works for Concordia and he's an instructional designer which I'm so excited for and you also got your degree in tech integration and yeah he's just getting there getting really. there sorry <laughs> getting there curriculum developer but tons of experience and I'm just so excited to introduce him to Sean and we can have this great conversation about instructional design and planning for the future
0: mhm very cool well let's start where we do all every week let's start with the wins of the week and quentin will make you go first because that's fun for us uh, <laughs> anything that's good that's happened inside outside of the classroom wherever you can find it
2: yeah um i've got two wins for the week uh i'm in the last three courses of this uh master's degree in instructional technology and my team uh, for this piece of group work is going so amazingly well that I just feel very proud of all of us and the project's going to be amazing and my second win of the week was an onboarding um, with a bank that's based in Europe where I'm going to be doing some curatorship uh, thanks to Brexit Um, so I'm going to be doing some consultancy and curatorship with French and English with them so that was exciting.
1: That's exciting. And and we can't share that bank because, but it's awesome. I'm very excited for you. It's a it's a huge win and congratulations on that. Thank you. <laughs> Sean, are you gonna do your win or me?
0: Uh, I'll let you go first, ladies first this week.
1: Well, you know, mine, I just have to say that yesterday had to be my win of the week. You know, part of the reason why I moved back to Florida was to be able to spend time with my father and to introduce my childhood to my children. And yesterday we were out in the boat, 22 miles out in the middle of nowhere with my, my oldest son and my father, um, just really taking in the environment, learning some, some skills that my grandfather, my dad, my grandfather, my dad was passing down to my son. And you know what? It's just one of those things that you can never, never forget and hopefully it'll be a memory for my oldest son for years to come. So it was a great one.
0: Oh, that's awesome.
1: And cool. I had no tech all day because there was no service out, 22 miles I, out. So. I know.
0: I was trying to text you. And just <laughs> I'm
1: like, I'm here. not.
0: <laughs> it wouldn't even go to delivered status. It was just like, she's gone. It was great. <laughs> well, it's, it's rare that that happens. Usually um, you're very uh, available and it's good to be unavailable for a while
1: yeah it was weird, but yeah it was good
0: <laughs> well uh, so for me, my win has been a technical win. um I use summers as a time to you know push myself on it on technology and learn new things and and really have that focus time where I can dive into something very deeply and so this project that I've been working on for probably i think since November or december last year i I spent some time pushing it forward, and it's horrendously complex, right? Like it, it has a lot of moving parts. It has all these things, but it's really production grade, you know, detailed heavy duty stuff. And I'm just diving into it and I'm like, you know, happy as a pig in mud. <laughs> like it is because <laughs> now it's now I've gotten over that initial like learning stage where everything is difficult and everything is hard. And now I'm getting it to do really cool things. And the whole project is, is, is very briefly this um, database that scrapes data from government websites about licensing information for healthcare providers. And the goal is to make it so that um, is to provide data to a bunch of other websites. So like websites that want to provide resources for um, parents of children with autism or that are otherwise on the spectrum. It gives them information about providers in their area. So um, what the, the short version of it is, that let's say someone gets licensed in the state of Ohio here in the U.S. For a, to be a behavior analyst. This um, program will scrape that website like once a week, download the publicly available data, process it, put it into a database, but then it also looks up their address information and geocodes that into a latitude and longitude so it can be put on a map and the, the big thing that I worked on uh, this week was getting it so that it sends a notification email on a, on a daily basis to let me know that, like hey, here are the number of new providers that I found. Here's the number of updated ones. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a big breakthrough with like try, just trying to figure out something simple, which is, if I have a provider that exists in the database already, how do I know that their information's been updated on the website, and how do I compare the two and do that in a I really way?
1: Don't you do sets? You can do sets, or you can use uh, uh, uh pan. No, pandas. No, pandas.
0: Oh, you'll like this one, Kelly. So <laughs> you'll like this. So I made a um, a class. So I'm using PyDantic. Okay. Oh, PyDantic yeah. data classes, yeah. <laughs> and I overloaded the equality operator between two PyDantic data classes so that I can it compare over the my two head. quickly. <laughs> oh, I can just so glad. <laughs> <laughs> well. So it's like one of those things, like the hard parts are like the simple things are always really complex. But basically now what you can do is say if the provider that's on the database is not equal to the provider that I just scraped, then go update their data. Otherwise, don't do anything. So it's just like a, it makes it really simple to be able to say is the old one the same as the new one. If so, don't do anything otherwise update it. So it's like it, it was a lot of work to get there but it was really satisfying and i'm learning so much and i also feel like i'm going to be able to explain more technical com concepts now because i've just have been immersed in it so much over the summer so it's getting me excited to think about like what i can do in the fall with the students and you know and some of these newer um newer things that we want to include in our curriculum
1: that's crazy that's like um that goes with this new book, uh, you know, of course, I have another book for this week, uh, this new book that I'm talking about, about these um, talent code. So, Quentin, I've got like maybe a, a, a centimeter of myelin around my ner- my neurons that pass on this Python training and where Sean's just like wrapped around. And so mm. the more myelin is like this more of this talent and this this uh, this neuron is like solid. So here I am trying to understand web scraping and I'm getting in there and I'm slow, slowly building the the myelin around my neurons. But man, it's impressive when once you get into that, uh, that clicking and that just builds out. So pretty cool When Sean. Mm-hmm. Thanks.
0: Uh, so of course, without Without fails, there would be no wins. <laughs> so so my fail of the week is, is something you can't actually see on camera because I'm not flexible enough to, I think, get it on screen. But oh, no. no. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> so, so my other big project this summer, and the fail is not that I hurt myself. The fail is the timing of it. My other big project this summer was I'm going to get back in shape. Like I've got some flexibility in my schedule. I'm still working a lot but i'm going to go to the gym and and the one condition that my wife put on me going back to the gym was you cannot go at 5:15 in the morning yeah. to the early class you have to go later in the day so i was doing really well i was there like you know six days a week for the first two weeks and then wow. i rolled my ankle in the gym and tore a ligament <laughs> in my ankle. So I've got about six weeks of recovery, which just happens to coincide with me returning to school right as that is, oh is no. so, so it's all to it's all on core exercises and upper body strength now, nothing lower body. So oh wow. Could
2: have Matt been worse but ligaments. That's tough.
1: Never
0: yeah. Yeah. But luckily it's, it's one, it's not debilitating too much. It's like on the side of my ankle. So as long as I don't need to like twist my foot or anything, I'm fine. So I can walk on it. I even have gone biking and and things like that, you know, just to kind of stay in shape. So not too bad.
1: Yeah. Well, cool. I don't have it. Well, I do have fails, but. Nothing besides the fact that I have to learn how to do Excel spreadsheets and 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 merge to and look for duplicates. And I'm just like, I can't remember. Surely I could just write a Python script for that quicker. But uh, that's about the biggest fail. Any fails for you, Quentin, or anything?
2: Oh, a small one. I tried paddle boarding this weekend when I went camping and couldn't stay up. <laughs> <laughs>
1: And that water's cold up there, no?
2: It's cold, but, you know, I love the water, so it's fine falling in. (laughs)
1: That's funny. Well, we jump into our topic, John.
0: Well, I I just wanted to go through a couple of news topics and get reactions and things like that. So, um, you know, we've, as we're going back to school, and I don't want to open up a huge can of worms, but the biggest thing that I've been seeing lately is around... Um, in-person teaching and requirements for students to be able to go back and mm-hmm. just kind of got wanted to get your thoughts on you know a lot of the latest guidance here in the U.S. from the CDC has been you know controversial I think a lot of people have been saying like oh maybe it's too loose maybe it's not restrictive uh, maybe it's too restrictive just want to get your thoughts about like how teachers should be thinking about the the start of the year when it comes to You know, just COVID um, response and your reactions to a lot of the news that's been coming out lately about the start of school again.
1: Quinn, do you want to take that? You guys are actually on lockdown still, correct? And or I know the borders are locked down. And
2: yeah, up here in Canada, the borders are still in lockdown. We're supposed to be opening them up in if like three or four weeks' time to fully vaccinated U.S. um, travelers. I know that there's a lot of international students are making their way to canada so it's a big thing that we're talking about in terms of going to colleges and university um it seems as though as long as you've got two vaccines doesn't matter which ones that Canada's going to let you in without the quarantine and um we'll let you come and study but the universities themselves are not really allowing all students back in so they're only allowing between 40 and 60 percent and if you have to have something at the university um the schools are very organized by province and by different school boards and um yeah i'm not quite sure about that i think they're pushing for blended learning still
1: yeah i know we have a a, still a little bit of a staggered start couple days in the beginning i think it's just to acclimate the teachers really, and the students, you know, back into the fact that we're not using maybe the cameras as much or a Zoom as much. The hopes were that we were going to move forward and, you know, go back to that, I hate the word normal, see, and back to normal kind of thing. But I don't know, I think there's a lot of, a lot of questions going around on the parents' WhatsApps for me is whether they're gonna wear a mask or not wear a mask. And, and how does that look like you know so i'm preparing personally i've say this the whole year i've loved zoom i've loved what it's done for teaching coding i've loved the ability to share the screen so i'm hoping that i can still say hey just jump on zoom i know there's other project products out there where we can share code but zoom was so easy and the kids know how to get in and we share the code and and they can talk about it, put their little face on the on the screen. And it's like presenting without the fear of having to stand up and present in front of a class. So personally, I'm hoping that I could still use Zoom in the classroom.
0: Well, I think you're still gonna have an account. So, <laughs> you know, go for it.
1: I'm gonna crash the bandwidth.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, I mean, I've been, I've been, you know, my reaction to this news has been you know, I really hope that all of our teachers out there can stay safe with all of this and everyone's able to make, you know, smart decisions for their classroom, the way that they teach best, and that keeps them safe and their students safe. I mean, that I think that's really what it comes down to. And, and I think we disagree on how we do that. But I think the goal is still there that we want to be, you know, we want to be able to teach in whatever way makes the most sense for the subjects and the areas that we're in. But finding the right way to do that is hard. And I think you know the good news is at least at least the way Kelly and I have been teaching is that you know it's an iterative process. We try things out, we experiment, we see how they work, we throw away the things that don't work and keep the things that do. And that's the way that we create our own normal. So
1: Well, that's so funny. I mean, I had a link on here to share actually, I don't know if you saw this um, from Shigeru Mayagawa, who's the professor of linguistics at MIT. He, he did a short talk it's very good video and i think it's eight minutes or ten minutes but he talks about the things that we learned from covid and the things that we should think about when we're building our instructional um, curriculum or or designing um what we're going to do in the classrooms and the couple of things that he got out of or we got out of learning online was this whole thing about teaching the whole student we, we were able, I know personally, I was able to feel more connected to, to someone at home. You got to see in their, in their houses. We got to comment on, oh, that's a cute little picture in the background or here's your dog, here's your cat. And we got to learn our kids, about our kids personally, more than what we would see in the classroom. So he says, that's one thing that we should take away from the whole COVID and make sure that that stays in the new school year. And the other thing was this attention of focus, or this. Um, we were doing crazy things. Like, I was like, come on, guys. And, you know, jumping up and down and putting red lipstick on with my Zoom to keep the attention of the students. And we were in this constant, how are we going to engage the kids? How are we going to keep them from falling asleep? How are we going to do this? And I think what um, Professor Shigiro says was when we go back to the classroom, that kids might have this sudden feeling of boredom because they're not in a screen, they're not looking at something that's engaging them. So, how are we going to keep them focused in the learning in the new school year? So, I thought that was interesting.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that leads really well into our topic too, because you know, regardless, every every school year is different, right? Like it can feel like they get a little bit you know, same after a while or a little bit repetitive, but, you know, I was thinking about it. um, My, when I first started teaching, that was my first year, right? So everything's new and everything's different. My second year, I'm like, I got this, you know, second year, I I know what I'm doing. I I think I have, you know, most of this figured out and then boom, COVID, right? (laughs) And then last year has been different for everyone. Um, And so each year is going to, is different. And I, don't think that there's any such thing as a normal school year anymore. Um, so as we go into this, how do we think about you know designing our approach, making this an intentional process, and not just, you know, let me just react to everything that's coming my way, right? Um, so, Quentin, maybe you can share a little bit about the, the role that you have with design and the way that you are working um, at Concordia, right? And yeah. how you do this intentionally instead of just, you know, letting things wash over you.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, which can be a bit of a panic state when you're getting to the end of the holidays and you realize that there's a whole year ahead of teaching. And you're thinking, how are we going to manage this with all the changes, with all... The regulations etc uh, I was I was listening to you chatting at the beginning about um, you know studying Sean you're talking about studying this project this database projects that's scraping data you're talking about when you've got certain time you can come back to the work um, and you can really take a deep dive into it but you don't always have the time you've got to be flexible all of these things Things are aspects of what we call andragogy or teaching to adults. So there's pedagogy, which is teaching K-12, to and there's andragogy. And in pedagogy, there are extra things that we need to um, add to our toolbox. We've, As Kelly says, we've got to keep the learners engaged. We've got to do things that switch on the motivation and keep drawing them along the learning program. However, when it comes to adults, we've got this expectation that they're going to be engaged. They want to do this project. They want to do this um, course or this degree. So, if I if I'm if I come at it from an umbrella aspect and I talk about human performance improvement, if we think of like an HR of a company, any company is spending. A lot of money on the people and the people the employees are going to be the most costly asset in in the company so we want to make sure that everyone is able to perform efficiently at the best of their ability we want to make sure that they've got all the skills and knowledge that they've got the capacity to do this and that the organization and the environment gives them uh, the possibilities and the resources in human performance improvement we sp- split it into two things what can the person do themselves what are their skills and knowledge what what attitudes and motivations can they bring to it and we split it into the environmental and we say this is the system that we're living in this is the industry uh, this is the way we recruit and select this is the way we compensate these are our expectations And this was developed uh, from, it's called the behavior engineering uh, model. And there's been a lot of data and research that shows that the uh, systems and the environmental aspects take up about 80% of what actually has an effect on the human performer. So there's a huge amount that's in your school curriculum, that's in the school protocols and um, systems that is there in place, whether our learners fit into it or not. Then if we bring it down another level and we go and we look at things like curriculum design, here we're saying, okay, let's form it a little bit more uh, uniquely. We're going to call this the maths curriculum. We'll call this one the English lit curriculum. We'll call this one the Spanish as an additional language curriculum. And here we're looking more at Focusing on what does this person need to learn uh, year by year? What are the skills? What are the behaviors? What are the attributes that we want to see them perform at the end of this? And then focusing specifically on uh, this master's that I'm doing now, which is instructional design and using instructional technology. We're saying, okay, what's the exact course or class that we're going to be teaching? And how can I deliver this in multiple aspects that are going to hit all of the objectives, still pull my learners along in a motivating and engaging way, and will no doubt at the end of the course give them the skills that they can apply in a real uh, life way immediately? I think, Kelly, hold on. You're muted. You're muted.
1: I'm muted. Sorry. I'm muted because there's people in the background. I had some processing. I was like, where's my paper? Um, <laughs> I, I love that. And it's just there's so much to think about. I think sometimes when people come into the industry, um, and I, I'm not gonna say Sean did this because he came in and he became a natural right away. Um, but there's just like, you come into this industry, I'm I'm gonna teach and I'm going to teach coding and I'm just going to go and stand up at the board and here you go. You're going to type print, hello world. And we're going to do this and we're just going to go and we're going to go into idle and we're going to type this, we're going to do this and bam, you know it, you're ready to go, go code something. But like you said, there's so many other factors that um, actually need to be built upon first. I almost think of it like that pyramid. You have this instructional design of everything that's going in within the system and then you can start building on your curriculum and then you can start building on the actual content. So there's a lot of things going on and, and a lot of moving parts. So if that, that something in that cog or something in that base starts to deteriorate, you know, the, the system or the, the culture or the, the parameters in place, then the whole content is irrelevant because it's just gonna fall off the pinnacle.
0: You know, the other thing that I like, too, about the way that you incorporated all of that was that it's also very goal focused, that you've got really clear design goals for what you want to create, whether it's for the individual or for the environment, to be able to really clearly, like, tie all of the activities, all of the pieces that you're designing and putting together back to those goals. So that, you know, and, and that was one of the things that I found as I was teaching was that Kelly and I sat down at the beginning and thought, okay, what are three things that we're going to try to do at the beginning of this course, right? And we're going to try to accomplish those and we're going to measure ourselves. We're going to be critical of how well we've achieved that and all of those things. But then we're going to reevaluate and say, did we reach those goals? What else do we need to do? How can we better achieve these goals? What worked? What didn't? All of those things. But we wouldn't be able to do that if we didn't set out those goals at the beginning, right? We have to design with that intention of these are the things we're really trying to do.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, when, when you talk about being goal oriented, our goal, no matter if it's uh, teaching learners to code Python or if it's like the work that I'm doing for Concordia University, the goal is the end learner. How can we impart this knowledge in a useful, efficient way that gives them real world skills that they can immediately turn to their next project and go, how can I put this model in here?
1: Yeah, so here's a question, and I'm gonna throw these out there because I know you can handle anything I give you. Um, so a lot of our listeners or uh, um, a lot of people that are, who may not have curriculum science in their, in their schools, who want to develop a, a K-12 or a 6-8 or a, you know, a K-5 curriculum, they're like, how do you begin? What would you say? I mean, I know what I would say. I could talk an ear off. But what would you say as an as an experienced instructional designer? <laughs> um, <first,
2: laughs> Throw that up <out> there. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. That's a really good one. It's a huge question. Um, I would start out by saying, "Hey, the wheel has already been invented." If your uh, school board or school district doesn't have a well-formed curriculum, is there something in the neighboring school districts that works really well that you can download and start looking at as a model? Um, Or can you use a a theory or a model like uh, we use ADDIE? It stands for Analyze, Design, Develop, Implement, and Evaluate. Or something like Agile. You know, perhaps you've heard Agile or you were mentioning at the beginning of the podcast, you use an iterative approach to learning. So you try something, you write something out, you talk to your other teachers about it and say, do you see this working in our classroom or for your subject? Uh, Maybe do a few tweaks and then you teach the lesson and then at the end, come back and wrap it up with an evaluation and say that went really well let's keep that for next year and slowly you're going to start building modules that fit really well within the overall framework
1: yeah i mean i think um that was something and i'll use as a personal story like we developed the design technology curriculum at our former school and it was something that it was definitely trial and error um, five years in the making I think that's something to for everyone to keep in mind Sean and I've been doing this for three years and we have only been teaching sixth through eighth of Python for three years and every year we've added a little bit more we've t- tweaked a little bit more we we constantly talk um, we get to do this four times a year so what someone has at the beginning it of the of the school year might look a little bit different by the end because we're constantly going through this process of reflection, design, um, iteration, evaluation, just going through this constantly and in, in you know in this agile method. There's so many. They're all the same, right? Aren't they?
2: <laughs> it's, there's a lot of overlap <laughs> with so many of these, <laughs> like. I, I learned like 20 of them in one of my learning theories courses, but I only used two. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's the idea of just, just reflect on it, and it'll be fine. <laughs> yeah,
2: <exactly>. Metacognition. Metacognition. It was <laughs> <laughs> funny.
1: Yeah. John, you want to add anything?
0: Well, I mean, I, I think it's a, it's a good point. There's a lot of frameworks out there and it'd be really easy to try to like mix and match. You know, it's like the, the idea of a cook who's looked at a lot of recipes and says like, okay, now I'm just gonna make up my own thing. Like sometimes it's better maybe just to stick to one or two recipes and do them really well. Um, and and not have to worry about everything else and then once you've really played it out and you feel comfortable that you know That it works then switch to something else if it's not working for you, right? Um, so yeah, I, I'm totally with you like yeah I know 20 different ways to do a lot of different things But I have the two that I know I that I can do right like these are the ones that I can do and Quentin, You may have something totally different that that works well for you um, and that's kind of the beautiful thing that I found about teaching is being able to watch what works and what doesn't and how it affects each individual student in their own way, too.
2: Right. And it's adding more tools to the toolbox. Right. Right. So um, just to give to give you an example with Concordia, some of the materials that I'm developing are pretty heavy going. So I'm talking about like media manipulation, um, police, uh, misinformation, state manipulation of the media, community outreach, uh, different cultures, uh, multiculturalism. These can be quite challenging topics to bring to a high school student or a middle school student. So I'm using a, a, a model called Keller's ARCS model, and it's specifically designed to motivate and engage students from the beginning to the end, because I know that the material is tough to go through. So I'm using something that's gonna motivate them. And like to give, to give another metaphor that illustrates what you were talking about, Sean, it's like if you start following a recipe for um, some stir fry, and then suddenly halfway through cooking, you switch it to something French. It's right. not really gonna work. Try one model all the way through and see how that goes. And if it works well, try it again with another format
0: yeah I mean, I think if you're a brilliant chef, maybe you can figure <laughs> that out, but the only way that brilliant chefs got to be brilliant chefs was by you know following through, doing the work, you know playing it all the way out, and seeing what happens. so you know i I know that there are things I'm good at. I'm not a brilliant chef, so I'm going to keep working on <laughs> on the recipes,
1: yeah. Can, can I ask you another difficult, maybe not difficult, but I love the mission statement. You posted this in here about um, Concordia's mission statement. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that, the whole fact that to conduct research on teaching and learning and to develop evidence-based tools and strategies, and this is the thing that I love about it, that positively impact our society. I think as as teachers, we we want to make a positive impact on 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 our society on our kids on the community at our school and i just like that mission statement you want to elaborate on some of the ways that you bring that in to your instructional coaching
2: for sure Uh, so the i'm working for a specific center at concordia university and it's the center for the study of learning and performance so bringing in learning for K to 12 and this human performance engineering for adults. And what we're doing is um, my, one of my directors is the UNESCO uh, chair for the prevention of radicalization and extremism in Canada. And so we do have an advocacy and um, a focus on data and evidence-based research So we've got about 40 members and collaborators that work on researching these themes of cognitive and motivational science, uh, educational technology, research creation, social pedagogy. And we try to uh, focus on these not only to create strategies that we can give a teacher and they can download a lesson but we want to make it um e-learning accessible uh universal design for learning and we want to make it based on our facts and our research so we know it's going to make a positive difference in the classroom Mm
1: there's a lot of lot of things in there a lot of things to uh (laughs) to to break down and i'm thinking of these words as you're coming out with it for example the cognitive and motivational science we have the cognitive side of why do we teach what we do why how is it going to help with the learning how is it going to build that myelin how's it going to solidify those you know what barbara oakley was telling us sean from the short term to the long term how do we get that happening Mm -hmm. the motivational science what is it and sean always tells me pick a project, pick a project. And I'm like, "Ah, I'm losing my intrinsic extrinsic motivation. So, you know, how do we bring that in for our kids? I mean, what else did you say in in educational technologies? That's an easy one for us. I think we're always constantly in computer science using the computer,
2: Mm. but we
1: tend to forget that there's the other side of it. You know, how do we use it for social good? How do we use it effectively? How do we pick the right tool? How do we communicate what we've learned? And so there's these things that people assume that we're doing in computer science because we use a computer to code, but we don't necessarily go into the educational technology side. When you say research, research creation, that's that I'll let you go into that. And the social pedagogy, I mean, social pedagogy, I'm assuming you're talking about how do we fit in within society? And how do we make our place, our our spot and place in time within that curriculum and and, yeah. and the rest, right? Right. That's, that's heavy. Lots of stuff going on in there, and lots of think, lots of stuff to think about when you're when you're designing your curriculum.
0: Yeah, I think maybe one of the things we could do is just go through some practical steps that people can go through, right, to be able to get this going. <laughs> <Hold>. Hi, Rachel. <Ranger. laughs> <laughs> I don't have the background <laughs> board. Oh, <there> <laughs> <laughs> My lovely wife.
1: <laughs>
0: All, right. <laughs> All right. She's um, out of <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'm thinking about, um, you know, I'm, I'm really thinking about, like, what are the practical steps? Like, what are we going to do now to set ourselves up for, for next year? And I thought maybe what we could do is come up with a few items, you know, a, th- a few things like, where do we start? How do we get this going? Um, so that we can include a lot of the the goals that you're talking about, Quentin, in our um, process so that, you know, our te- our audience, our teachers, our students can really have this as part of their curriculum from the beginning of the year and from their delivery at the beginning of the year all the way through. So, you know, one of the things that I think we should start on is, you know, setting goals, right? How many goals do you set? What should, what makes good goals, right? and how do we how do we measure them or how do we track them as we go so um quentin like what makes a good goal to set out when you're designing curriculum like what's something that would be a a good goal that maybe every teacher should at least consider when they're designing
2: Mm -hmm. that's a really good question um i'll come back to it my learner is my my end goal so i've got to almost create a learner persona in my mind uh, and think, okay, I've got X learner sitting in front of me and they coming into my classroom with these things that they do well and these things they don't do well. And we've got all sorts of things to consider, but If I can create one enduring understanding or overall goal that fits into the overall curriculum, that gives me a good umbrella from which I can start dropping down different panels of uh, courses or course materials. And those can each have their own little educational goal that builds into the overall pyramid.
1: I'll break that back down. Cause yeah. I know I I'm seeing the picture that he's saying. So we're going, you know, we could talk curriculum. So that profile, Sean, we know our students. So if we're starting this, but we don't, we don't need to, we don't necessarily think about it because we already know our students, but we're thinking, okay, our, most of our students have gone through K through five with some form of curriculum or coding curriculum. They know what a loop is. They kind of have this idea that that little fuzzy codable guy is going to go and, and catch the little blocks or whatever and they're gonna do some tinker and they know that and they're not gonna be too scared of coding but they might be scared of scripting. So that profile to keep in mind is we probably have some eager students but they're a little timid. So as we as we think about what enduring um, objective we want as our umbrella, I think for Sean and I, I speak for him, I think our idea is that they get this passion our enduring, our enduring understanding is that our students will develop a passion for, and I don't want to say a passion for coding, but for solving problems to help their lives or their lives around them. We want them to understand that with this technique, this goal, um, this idea of coding, that they can even solve a problem of how to build something because we're teaching them these skills that are applicable with coding, with with you know, design with uh, humanities research, we're we're trying to develop these skills. Was that right, Sean? You want to yeah, summarize I, that in a better well, word? I mean, <laughs> well,
0: I, I think the the idea is really solid, and, and we actually this is uh you this concept is used in marketing as well, uh, which I know a lot better than I know teaching. Uh, but but the idea of personas is really important, and one of the the traps that um, I've seen companies fall into when they do their marketing is they either have one persona that they think everybody fits into, or they have 20 personas and they've gotten so finely detailed on it that it's irrelevant. So what we typically do in the marketing side, and I think this works pretty well or translates pretty well to teaching is coming up with three to four different learner personas right and that gives you enough differentiation that you can distinguish between them and say okay this is maybe one of my personas is the kid who is just gung-ho for coding (laughs) for whatever reason they are already bought in they're already sold you don't need to show them anything to get them excited you just need to help them channel that energy right um then you might have another persona that's the exact opposite this is the kid that's sitting in the back of the room like you can't teach me nothing Right, like I'm, <laughs> like I'm here because you're, because I'm, I have to be, not because I want to be, and then a whole variety of different, you know, places in between. So if we, if you come up with, you know, those three to four different personas that work really well for your learners and help, help you, um, kind of identify what people uh, need, you can better tailor your approach to each of those personas and it's okay if they're, you know, different. You know, they don't have to be everything to everybody. I think the the second thing that I, I wanted to pull out from the goals conversation is that it sounds like there are very concrete tactical goals. Like I want them to have this knowledge or these skills that they've developed, but you can also have secondary or you can also have goals that are less tangible like Here's how I want them to feel when they enter my classroom and when they leave. Here's how I want them to feel at the end of the course. These are the emotional goals, the social goals that I want them to acquire or achieve as part of my my course. Um, And then the last area is I think you have to include those kind of like Mandatory goals like the requirements like it's paying taxes, right? Yes. I have my administration that needs these needs me to do these things They're not necessarily directly influencing my other goals in the classrooms But they're things that I have to do right So how do I include those goals in my design as well? Like I have to teach all this in 50 minutes a day, right? I can't set my own schedule. So you have these constraints, these requirements that are imposed on you that you have to include as well. And I think it's OK to sit down now while you have some time and go through laying out each of those goals and laying out the personas of the students that you have and then thinking about how you're going to achieve each of those goals with each of the personas. And there can be overlap. Like, yes, all the students are only going to have 50 minutes right, in, in the classroom, but then maybe my gung ho students are going to want a lot of extra time so how am i going to solve that for them um my second question is quentin how do you know that you're reaching (laughs) your goals right how do you know that you're actually that it's actually working right this is my brian Aachen question for testing right yeah like not not testing scores and and how do i create better quizzes but how do i know that it's working that i'm achieving
2: those goals for those learners It comes down to, can your different learners provide you with the products and learning deliverables that show a complete understanding and using the materials up to the level that you want them to? Do you want them to just repeat the information back to you? Do you want them to modify the information a little bit? Do you want them to like, as with your problem solving and coding, do you want them to create something new? So decide the level that you want them to give you uh, the the product, the learning product, and then build tasks that go up to this product. Um, Coming back to the learners, one way that we do this in instructional design is we actually create Uh, paragraphs of this is our current learner's behavior they're doing this they're having problems with that they don't understand this they drop off engagements at this level and then we create the same persona but doing 100% of what we imagine is uh, the level that we wish them to be at and then we analyze and compare the two. And we compare it with those six boxes of internal supports and environmental. So we say, do they, what skills and knowledge gaps are missing? This becomes our skills and knowledge goals. What um, resources and instruments um, are missing in this gap? This is what we need to supply them with. What is motivating and incentivizing them to continue with this? What's the gap there? How can we fill this gap or motivate them to reach that? And then same in the, uh, uh, for the worker themselves what, what, uh, or the learner, sorry. Uh, what are they bringing to the classroom? What is, what do, what's their prior knowledge? What did they learn in grade five before coming to your grade six class? What are they bringing to it in their attitudes and emotions? Sean, that's talking about your learner who's like, yes, give me these challenges. I got that done. I'm on to the next one, as opposed to the young person at the back of the class is like, oh, God, when's recess? All right. <laughs> yeah. So we create two learner personas where they are right now. Ideal. We find the gap in the middle and the gap becomes the learning goal.
1: I, yeah. I'm like, whoa. So no. So I, like I combined, I, was as well. <laughs> I combined Sean and Quentin. Right. So I'm thinking, so we always get, we, again, we, we get these, these questions because we have those kids that are off the charts in sixth grade coding beyond my, my abilities, which I, the pushed me to learn. So in theory, Sean, we have these Let's simplify and just say three. Three profiles. And And we did this for the, what does the student who in, who finishes grade 12 at Pinecrest look like? What is the student who comes into sixth grade, loving coding? What does he look like at the end of our quarter? What is the kid that, you know, okay, I, I know coding, I'm gonna do it because I'm a good student and I'm gonna put my best foot forward. What does that student look like at the end of the quarter? And then the child that's sitting in their ho-hum, digging his feet in and saying, you know, I hate this class, I can't code. What does he look like or she look like at the end of the quarter? That's just that little step. And we extrapolate it to what do they look like at the end of eighth grade? Right, and, and that goal, that final picture, that final profile is our, our ultimate goal where you can have those panels that Quinton was talking about of here's our mandates from the school curriculum. Here's our, our social emotional learning um, goals for our students. Here's our educational use of technology for our students. And they kind of fit into this, this body persona of this child and what we want to see happen. And what do they look like when they graduate? Yeah. So
0: And I think it's exactly. important also here is that the role of assessment is really critical in this as well. And and it's critical that we think about assessment very broadly and very creatively in terms of how we're going to assess progress against each of these goals. Because it'd be, you know, pretty simple to put out like a Google form that says, how do you feel, (laughs) right? Like one to five, I feel great about coding or I feel terrible about coding. And at the end, ask them the same question, see if if it's moved, right? But there are many other forms of assessment that you can do that are maybe less quantifiable, but more qualitative in nature that could be helpful for you to get a better sense of what's happening as a teacher. And then also importantly, be able to show others to be able to share, you know, like, look, here's a Flipgrid video that my, you know, you know, my heels dug in student recorded at the beginning of the quarter versus here they are at the end. And maybe they're not 100% on board yet at the end of sixth grade, but they're like, I found something cool that I could do. And that that part was a win for me in the course. I didn't like anything else, but I found one thing that I like to do. That might be enough progress for that profile or for that persona. To claim a victory in terms of we're making some goals happen, and that in seventh grade when they're back now we've got something a little bit higher to build on. You know they've got something that that was a win for them that we can use to take them a little bit further. Mm-hmm.
1: I've, while you're thinking, um, I saw this really uh, funny tweet. Will Richardson, we 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 went to. The we presented I forget where we we saw him in the Monterey conference. <laughs> there right? we go, that one. Yep. <laughs> and he's this go you know go getter educational reform, and I just love a lot of the things he says because he likes to push the boundaries. And he replied to someone on Twitter who was saying there was a study, um, and a whole write up on students who enjoy school at the age of six earn higher standardized test scores at 16, even after control, uh, controlling for intelligence. So they're talking, you know, we have them motivated, they enjoy it. They want to come to school. They're going to have higher standardized tests. That's great. We see this abstract. We're like, yeah, of course, let's, let's motivate them. Let's make them enjoy school. But will Richardson being will Richardson says if raising test scores, are a motivator for making learning fun, then something is seriously wrong. So again, how are we measuring students? Again, like Sean said, it's not necessarily this, this tangible, yes, now my student can repeat to me what a for loop is, or now my student can say, yeah, I understand that classes are this, or this is object oriented programming. Great, you know, but is that what we're going to take as, as our, our standard for success? Right. You know, and that, that poses a good question.
0: And here's, here's an example, right? So my first year I had an eighth grade student and Kelly knows the, the student I'm talking about who was like my project student. Cause her attitude was just like really tough. You know, she mm. was definitely smart, but she fit into that. I'm digging my heels in, you know, sort of thing. And it was really hard to get her motivated, but I kept telling her that she could do it. I kept working with her. I kept encouraging her. I, I told her I wasn't going to just give up on her learning this. I wanted her to, to find a way to do it. And I wish I could say I had all of this figured out with like, what was the gap for her that I needed to figure out? But I was, I think she was my first uh, class my first year. So I just did what I thought was best and 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 made it work. And at the end of this past year, I spoke with her and she she didn't have to take any computer science courses in the upper school. It's not a mandatory course. She could have chosen a different path, but not only did she choose to take computer science, but now she's choosing again to take another computer science course in the fall. How do you measure that? I don't know that you can measure it and say like, okay, well kids who take, how many of my students go on to take computer science in in upper school is the right measure. It's how do you say students that were really hesitant before about computer science are now engaged in and interested in it, that their attitude has changed. There's probably a way to measure that, but it may be just as effective to be able to use the anecdote to say, hey, I've got this student who really didn't like to do it. And now they're not only doing it, but they're doing more. They're asking for more. They're wanting to do more. And that is a way to you know express that qualitative storytelling aspect of the, achieving the goals that you're setting out to. Um, That's I know we're
2: coming. <laughs> Go I was just said
1: that's going into my database that I'm making. <laughs> yeah,
2: there you go. There that's you go. opening a whole box on assessments I want to talk about. <laughs> right. right. Well, I, I, I know we're running a
0: little bit short on time. Um, I have another call coming up right after this. So hmm. we are going to wrap up here, but I think uh, certainly there's a lot more that we can talk about with you, Quinton, about design and measurement and assessment and you know, and goal setting. Um, So I want to say thank you for, for coming for that. But I also think that there's this great additional conversation that we can continue to have. It's something we've talked about before around diversity, equity, and inclusion. I think it's worth a whole episode on its own. In fact, you know, we keep talking about it because it's worth more than just an episode. Um, It's something that's, you know, drives a lot of our purpose, and we'd love to have you come back for that. So I think our our guests, um, our audience would definitely appreciate to have you back uh, for more, and so we will schedule that as well. Um, Any final thoughts uh, to share, any advice for teachers going back to school um, or going back to the Zoom in a few weeks?
2: (laughs) That's you. (laughs) That's me, eh? Um, Take a deep breath. Remember that it's a tough job and that you need to look after yourselves also, especially in the first few weeks. There's a lot of everyone coming to the teacher because you're the central point of information or advice. So set things up well the week before and then look after yourself for the first month. And I would love to come back and talk about (laughs) inclusivity. It's very close to my heart. I've had such an awesome chat today. I've loved sharing the things that I'm studying and researching and working on. So thank you very much. Yeah, there's oh.
1: never enough time to, to have great conversation with friends. So definitely would love to have you back to see if we're keeping up with our goals. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, and and in terms of announcements from us, uh, we're continuing on social media. We did just launch an email newsletter subscription, which you can find at teachingpythonpodcast.substack.com. I believe. Yep. Okay. I'm looking for the banner at the bottom of the screen to make sure I get it right. That's why I put it up there. Um, But we are that is a free newsletter for now we may uh, work on a premium version of that with some additional content. Um, but if you'd like to get email updates from us, that's now the best way to get that. Um, and so for teaching Python, wait, I, wait, 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 real quick. Wait, go, I know go, you have
1: one minute. Go, go. Um, don't forget, CS, CSTA standards, they released them in 2020. Ah. But they did put them out. That's for teachers on how to design their classroom. And then talent code. We'll put the link. Can't see that light. Talent code. This is a great book. I love it. All right, for teaching Python. (laughs)
0: All All right, sounds good. So for teaching Python, this is Sean.
1: And this is Kelly, signing off.